welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. All right. Hey, gang. My name's Lee, and I'm a real sexaholic. Uh, and I just want to clarify something before I start. Uh, this is I am a retired physician. And I'm going to give stuff that's medical, but it's not a professional talk. Uh, this, because uh, OA or AA as such is not a professional organization. This is my experience, strength, and hope, which allowed me to seize on to recovery in 1986. And it's something that I've held on to. This information will not fix anybody, as far as I know, because uh, recovery is uh, not informational, it's experiential. And we're looking for a spiritual experience rather than an informational uh, learning. But this uh, uh, information allowed me to give up enough shame and attempts to control that I was able to get recovery. So that's the reason I want to share this experience with others. And um, if you don't like it or you're bored and you want to leave, feel free to. Uh, And if you go to sleep, just please don't snore and and wake up the guy next to you. So, uh, what's this all about? Uh, You know, I I thought I was pretty smart. Uh, And and 35 years ago, when this whole thing started for me, I um, was a young star physician in the Nashville medical community. Uh, I had graduated Phi Beta Kappa with a chemistry degree. I had graduated from medical school, uh, AOA. Uh, for those who are not medical, that's Phi Beta Kappa in medical school. Uh, I had done a residency at Vanderbilt Hospital, one of the top residencies around. I had uh, uh, gotten a prestigious practice in a wealthy neighborhood and was riding high, making lots of money. I was on the staff at four different hospitals. I was on the clinical faculty at Vanderbilt. I taught medical students and uh, gave lectures to nurses and went uh, around Middle Tennessee lecturing to physician groups uh, about all this stuff I smart about. And uh, so, uh, uh, you know, I, I had, I was serving on seven committees at uh, the hospitals. Uh, uh, a colleague of mine and I in 1984 started the first patient education channel here. Uh, and so, you know, I was really it. And, uh, and I knew it. Um, (laughs) There were some cracks in that little picture, uh, and I concealed it, but I was going to psychotherapy twice a week uh, and taking medication because I was shooting a little too much Demerol. And... uh, and, uh, uh, at that time, neither myself nor my psychiatrist knew a damn thing about addiction. Uh, and uh, so we talked about it, and he thought, if you understand these neurotic symptoms, you'll stop using. Um, 
And of course, I neglected to tell him that every time I used, it was combined with pornography and masturbation. Uh, and I neglected to tell him that I was drinking to blackouts with Jack Daniels and uh, I was stealing my own patient's drugs and and had uh, prescription fraud all around the city. Uh, but I was still the superstar. And uh, I was concealing this fairly well. Uh, uh, and it was... Uh, uh, a thing that one night I didn't come home and uh, my wife got very concerned because I wasn't answering my beeper and so I uh, she called one of my partners and they came in the office uh, there I was, unconscious on the floor, uh, w with needles right there, pools of blood, pornography all around me, uh, and those people who are concerned about full disclosure, that was it. <laughs> so... And I was thinking, why the heck can't I figure this out so it'll stop? But uh, with uh, the ejection from my practice for having stolen their drugs and practicing impaired, uh, I was left without a job. And so what I did was... Uh, the guy came to see me from the impaired physician. I threw him out of my house. And I said, I'll, shoot, I'll sell shoes before I admit I'm an addict. And, uh, I mean, if that wasn't obvious. In 1985, it wasn't obvious. And uh, so this was just getting started. But uh, my beloved spouse convinced me to go. And I went. And um, this was really a culmination of a lifetime that began when I was five years old, when I masturbated and quickly got uh, compulsive about that. By the time I was seven, I had a full-blown eating disorder, weighing 110 and exercising and restricting. Uh, I added drugs before I was 10, mostly inhalants. By the time I was 14, I was drinking to blackouts. And uh, so this, you know, uh, my book is going to be called Donuts to Demerol. So... <laughs> because that's the way it went. Uh, and uh, so I was practicing one day, and I decided that, uh, you know, my, it was a cabinet full of Demerol. I'd never tried that. So, boy, that went real well with pornography and masturbation. And uh, I was immediately strung out on that. And it got worse and worse and worse till I was uh, shooting intravenous cough syrup in my groin vein and uh, tried to start a vodka drip on myself while I masturbated. And this was really not sane behavior. <laughs> I have a very long story, as you might say. Uh, you know, I was also compulsively exercising. I had workaholism, and uh, ultimately I have retired, and I find out I just have to be busy. So I've got busyholism now. Uh, so I just, the question is, why was and why is my life so unmanageable? And so this is the information I got when I was in treatment that allowed me uh, to grasp on uh, to this idea of recovery and to actually surrender to it. So it's, you know, alcoholism was the first substance really written about, probably the first one we knew about, 
Because, I mean, even back in the uh, book of Genesis, Noah was abusing alcohol. Uh, so this is not a new thing. Uh, but it wasn't until uh, the 18th century, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Rush, described it as a disease. But he didn't give any specifics. Uh, it fast forward till the 1930s when uh, Dr. Silkworth was uh, practicing uh, at Towns Hospital, and he noticed that the, he th- that these alcoholics behaved very peculiarly, in that they did not seem to uh, uh, have any control, and he postulated that there was a combination of body and mind uh, that was affecting these alcoholics that were different from everybody else. And he was the first one that uh, created the idea of craving. And craving made these uh, alcoholics engage in behaviors that didn't make any sense. In essay, I think the equivalent term is probably lust. Uh, We crave things, uh, and uh, but I mean it's not new. Uh, uh, Twenty-five hundred years ago, the Buddha talked about something called dukkha, which could be translated insatiability. So uh, I think this is something that's been observed in human beings, but not uh, really fully explained. So um, this has turned out that Dr. Silkworth's observations have been verified over and over again as he talked about the uh, uh, obsession of the mind and the allergy of the body, uh, we have converted that into the terminology of the 21st century. And um, so here is how it all works uh, as we know it today. It's evolved greatly since I started giving this talk in 1986. Uh, But here's the the deal. This exists in the brain and the mind, uh, but this is what makes it up. Uh, Now, if you are not medically oriented, this picture is taken from slicing the brain right in half from top to bottom. So uh, you can see this stuff here on top of the brain is called the cortex, and it's where we think and reason. Uh, There is a specific part in this dark area up front that's called the prefrontal cortex. Now, it's the CEO of our brain and actions. It, It helps us decide what's good and what's not good for our well-being. I mean, it's like any CEO in a corporation. A good one will make good plans and follow those plans, and everything works out well. Uh, So this part of the brain uh, we need to know about. But the real problem for uh, the CEO uh, comes comes from deep within his organization. And uh, (laughs) this is all hidden, uh, just like I was hiding. Uh, So we got... uh, some areas in deep down in this core that's under the cortex, uh, toward the front. Uh, I'll talk about these one at a time uh, because these explain uh, the ideas about what makes up 
a disease and specifically what makes up addiction. And I've got those written down. What makes up a disease is that it has some symptoms. Uh, it has uh, an etiology that can be identified, and it has adverse effects that can be identified. So, uh, you know, the symptoms are written down there like uh, craving, uh, inability to control uh, things. Uh, your whole life becomes centered around using, uh, and it uh, basically is a consuming secret. So uh, this uh, collection of things shows what it is uh, about right here in the front. Uh, underneath uh, this cortex is this little area of the midbrain, which, by the way, the midbrain is also the experiential brain. It does not think. It can't integrate information and make it make sense. So this uh, little area here in that part of the brain that doesn't think is called the nucleus accumbens. And what that is is the area that when you uh, have something that is pleasing, it gives you a reward feeling. Uh, you feel good. And early on in life, that may be a hug from your mama or something. Uh, but uh, what happens to us is that we start stimulating it in other ways, and you get an intense euphoria that uh, makes things uh, where you are crave more likely to crave. This reward, liking something, is different from wanting something. Uh, and this is the area that lets us like things. Uh, it, you know, we've all had the sensation that we, uh, that we wanted something, but when we got it, we didn't like it. Uh, so the wanting and the liking are two separate things. But once you have this intense euphoria uh, that is uh, stimulated by alcohol, sex, uh, gambling, uh, heroin, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, anything seemed to get me off. Uh, but uh, it, if you do that, and many of us recognize that the more or the longer we use something, whether it's a substance or behavior, we need more of it to get the same hit. And that is because this nucleus accumbens gets numb. And uh, when it's numb, it is uh, requiring more to get it. And so it gets more numb. And there are some chemical reasons for this that have been worked out. But the, the problem is that when that happens, no other normal rewards help. All you've, I mean, if your mama hugs you, you're too numb to feel it. Uh, so that the intensity of the addictive experience becomes the only normal existence for an addict. So what we do is uh, we completely, everything else goes away except the addiction. And because we have to have it. Now, fortunately, uh, cessation of the use of the behavior will allow that sensitivity to return. And so it's not dead forever. It can recover. And uh, uh, I certainly can attest to that. Now, the, um, the other really... Uh, the other really important part here that I want to talk about is this area that's a little bit below and behind 
the nucleus accumbens is called the ventral tegmental area. And, of course, none of these names mean anything except they la- it's a label. Uh, but the ventral tegmental area is that part of the brain that's associated with wanting. And when we want something enough, it becomes craving. So uh, this is where the phenomena of craving begins. It was first recognized by a physiologist who was uh, experimenting on dogs. His name was Pavlov. And uh, he recognized that his dogs salivated and got excited when you showed them food. But pretty soon, when they heard the door unlock, they started salivating and getting excited. And so they were the first examples of what we today call a trigger. Uh, we tr- They triggered the onset of their craving and excitement not by looking at at what they were getting, only by hearing something. So that occurs in this ventral tegmental area, and it is associated with release of dopamine. And so dopamine working in this area is one of the biochemical pathways to learning. And unfortunately, uh, addicts learn some very unhealthy things. Uh, I mean, you know, I have an eating disorder, and uh, a donut shop is a very unhealthy thing for me to pass by. Um, But back when I was using, I couldn't go into a gas station because 1985 pornography was sold in gas stations uh, at that time. And it it was pretty... Uh, pretty risky, and all of that, unbeknownst to me, was going on hidden from my uh, thinking brain, and I was working extraordinarily hard in psychotherapy to think my way out of this, and uh, this thinking ain't doing anything for it. Um, now, uh, just to point out, there is another uh, area that's kind of below and in front of the ventral tegmental area that is the amygdala. And the amygdala, you may have heard of, is associated with uh, uh, emotions. Now, emotions, uh, you know, this median forebrain bundle, you'll see, correct, connects all of these things, but the emotions, whether they're pleasure or excitement or just angry or tired or hungry, all of those things can cause that release of dopamine in the ventral tegmental area. So what do we get? Craving. And so that's why they say don't get hungry, angry, lonely, or tired is because this amygdala stimulates the ventral tegmental area, which will then cause us to seek out a reward. Now, all this is going on in the CEO's organization, and he doesn't know what to do about it. Uh, and he's trying his best to make plans and to block this and to uh, arrange his life so it's not destroyed. So uh, he... Um, is in big trouble. Now, one of the things we know, which is unfortunate, is that when we use, it physically and functionally damages this prefrontal cortex so that it even has less control than we thought it did to begin with. So the um, it, there have been studies done using MRI scans and uh, functional testing and autopsies that show that this area shrinks and that the cells are abnormal in uh, someone who is uh, addicted. And 
you know, we've always thought that that was a toxic chemical effect to substance abuse, uh, but not necessarily. They found the same changes in gamblers and in uh, uh, people with eating disorders, and uh, they have done some studies on pornography that show the same thing. So uh, the CEO is in big trouble, uh, and uh, it's uh, not going to be able to think its way out of this. Now, um, one of the uh, important points is this whole area underneath the brain, here, underneath the cortex that covers it like this cap, this midbrain, I said, is an experiential brain. And uh, so when we can't think our way into getting better, uh, we have to live our way into getting better uh, by collecting more powerful experiences. And so within this area is where we can also have a spiritual experience. And a spiritual experience is on equal footing with all these cravings and things. And that uh, is one of the things that is very important in understanding uh, addiction is that it's not hopeless. And there is a solution. And uh, it's from the spiritual experience. Now, even better than that, you know, the, the spiritual experience is enhanced and maintained by spiritual practices. And uh, the 11th step talks about prayer and meditation. Ah. Uh, and also, scientifically, they have uh, studied like Franciscan nuns who have been doing contemplative prayer for 50 years. And when they scanned them with uh, MRIs, they find that this prefrontal cortex is larger than average. And they also find that same thing in scanning long-term practicing Buddhist monks. The idea being that uh, even though the uh, CEO is impaired, that it's entirely possible to repair that. We have to have some sort of maintenance support that maintains a spiritual experience so that it works to keep the behavior stopped. And that's what uh, it says in our literature. It says it's, ba it's contingent upon the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And Whatever we do to maintain that spiritual condition will keep this experience alive and will maintain uh, sobriety. Uh, it can be, as I said, probably further enhanced by more uh, spiritual practices that can actually help repair that CEO uh, that can make better plans and help us control things better. Now, this was remarkable information for me as I started recovery uh, because I was absolutely certain that I should be able to control this. But uh, I was proving to myself I couldn't but this information explained to me that I had to give up on my brain, uh, at least the thinking part of it, because my thinking wasn't very good. Uh, 
And so when I started to pursue the spirituality, the using and behaviors reduced. Uh, Now, I told you that even in recovery, I continued to use. I worked 16 hours a day. Uh, For a while, I was going to 13 meetings a week. And I was talking on the phone to about five or six people a week. Uh, and I was carrying on a full-time medical practice, seeing about 20 patients a day and going to the hospital and making rounds. Uh, I, I had to fill up my head with something other than the things that were killing me. Then I retired and all that work went away and I went into detox. Uh, so I just started being busier and busier, doing busy work. Now I've adopted the chef's role in our house, and I cook all day long. But, you know, it ain't killing me. You know, I'm not laying in the middle of the kitchen floor surrounded by pork chops. Life is better. Uh, you know, I'd rather be cooking than, uh, and I don't eat donuts, by the way, because that'll lead me back to Demerol. So, uh, <laughs> this, uh, this information helped reduce the shame enough so that I could pursue the spiritual practices that were the actual solution. And, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't think my way, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't think my way to sober living. I had to live my way to sober thinking. And uh, that was living a spiritual life. So I'm going to shut up. We may have time for a question or two if anybody wants one. Uh, mostly, I probably won't know the answers, but I'll give you an opinion. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Uh, yes. Uh, new, the question was to talk about how the new behavior helped uh, in the recovery process heal the brain. And the, th- the things that happen in the midbrain are if you stop using, then you receive the, the a reward center becomes sensitive to normal rewards like interpersonal relationships, hugs, that sort of things give you the reward. And so that helps to maintain a spiritual experience. The craving center will reduce so that it's not flooded with dopamine. However, people have still learned the things and, uh, you know, if you go into a porn shop, uh, which many people carry around in their hands today, uh, then that can trigger the same thing because your brain doesn't forget it, but it does have you have some improvement. The most important thing is, and they don't know why, but they do observe that meditative and contemplative practices will increase the the prefrontal cortex. One of the things they have done is that they've done studies on blood flow in Franciscan nuns as they did their contemplative prayer. And so what they find is that back here, in the uh, rear of the brain is an occipital area that exists where we know the difference between self and not self. And here in the front, in the prefrontal cortex, is our ability to focus. So when the uh, nuns do their contemplative prayer, the blood flow comes out of the back of the brain and it's all focused in the prefrontal cortex. So that implies, though it does not prove, that that continuing flood of blood 
gives an improvement in the structure uh, that would lead to better functioning. I don't know if that helps you, but that's what it is. Yes. Can you talk about which part of the brain gets so impaired that even after a few years of Yes, uh, that uh, the the, re, the the question is, uh, what, why, after you have uh, sobriety for uh, twenty years, uh, can you not start using things in moderation uh, and go back to a normal thing? And the the reason is that you've laid down memories uh, by the dopamine in the uh, ventral tegmental areas that uh, when you expose it to the behavior or substance, it once again floods the, the area with dopamine and creates craving. So even though it's not going on, the you know, it's stored up there. And so that once you are exposed, and sometimes even you'll see that people relapse when they have a very traumatic event from the amygdala also causes that brain uh, to, to dump dopamine. So that craving is what happens when you re-expose it. Yes. Are you talking about medication or the condition in general? All right. Uh, the question is, how does this all integrate with uh, what many of us have as attentional disorders and, uh, and possible medical treatment? Uh, the, uh, the way I would understand it, and I am not a specialist in ADD. And, but the way I would understand it, that this area in the prefrontal cortex is where our focus is concerned. And there are uh, studies that show that mindfulness meditation will help people's focus if practiced regularly, and that's part of what the prefrontal cortex is. Now, it's very risky sometimes for someone who has a substance use disorder uh, to take some of the medications that are prescribed for this. So if, you know, people have a cocaine addiction to the stimulant, Taking a stimulant such as meth, uh, not, uh, meth, methylphenidate or amphetamine salts can stimulate the craving again. So there are some uh, things that aren't available to everybody. And so there are a lot of different ways that it has to be treated. And the drug regimens now are much broader than they once were when everybody was treated with methylphenidate. In the back, I'll say. All right, the, an the, the question is, what role does SSRIs play? And uh, for most people know what an SSRI is, but it's an antidepressant. Uh, that SSRI stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. And it is, uh, it deals with the supply of, uh, the neurotransmitter, uh, serotonin, which some people uh, are possibly deficient in or malfunction in some way. But when you have serotonin uh, in the appropriate amounts, it modulates the feelings and emotions such that uh, terrible anxiety is sometimes reduced, which can be a trigger. 
uh, depression and hopelessness are reduced, which can be a trigger. But I do not know that uh, they inhibit uh, the craving center, but I don't know the answers to that question since SSRIs are utilized for people with sexual disorders, and, in, and they inhibit libido. So how that figures in, I'm not well-educated enough to tell you. So here we go. Mitch? I think just a quick question. I think it's a quick answer. You suggested, and I may have misunderstood, that the CEO of the company is on some level aware of what's going on underneath is, is it directly aware of what's going on in the, the, the central brain and the, sub, the, uh, the other parts of the brain? We're only aware through what actually happens when we finally wake up and see, oh shit, what I just did to my life. The, the question is, is the CEO fully aware of what's going on? Or is it just aware when it wakes up? Uh, and the answer is both. Uh, there are I was living in oblivion and thought I was going to uh, think my way around the next corner and I'd be okay, uh, but that didn't uh, that didn't occur. And I had rationalization going on that my behavior was really okay and that I really was in control. And Harvey told me one time that uh, rationalizing was just what it said; it was a rational lie, and. <laughs> Which I did a lot of. Ah, all right. So Dave H was mentioning that he sees all his character defects and his loss all being triggered out of fear. So I guess fear comes uh, from the amygdala. How do we improve our fear response su such that it doesn't trigger our loss and other character defects? And uh, you know I. I have a sponsee named Judson, any of y'all may know. And his way to deal with that is he just calls me and he says, I called 1-800-I'm-scared. <laughs> but the answer to your question is, uh, is not an easy one. Uh, anxiety and all those things can be treated medically, but uh, the, the spiritual practices help. And... For me, sometimes I'll talk several hours on the phone with people, and that, I mean, not one person, but I'll get lots of phone calls, and that will distract me, but the fear is treated in lots of different ways. Whatever the spiritual maintenance is helps fear. And for me, personally, my experience, that occurred when I came to my first essay meeting and I vomited all what was going on and nobody left the room. And I thought, well, hell, I'm safe for the first time. Uh, I don't have to worry if they're going to find out because they already know. Uh, so a lot of things. Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. And uh, I understand that the when we generate serotonin is in the stomach. And uh, at one time I had stopped taking the medication and my stomach came to give me all kinds of trouble. I was to see uh, gastroenterologist and everything and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And well, the question is... Uh, what is the relationship between serotonin and the stomach when you're taking antidepressants? And that's the easiest question I've had all day because I haven't the slightest idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm sorry, I can't answer that. You know, the, the, the reason I'm, I'm mentioning that is because when I stop taking that, you know, yeah. but once I started taking back the antidepressant, everything was fixed. 
Yes, that's right. But also, <laughs> I, I had the luck during that time, and so when I started, you know, took up the, the craving, so... Yeah, it does, uh, and, and uh, that's what I'm saying. Uh, antidepressants can indeed uh, cause this area to calm down, and that's why people don't have craving. All right, I'll, we got time for about one more or t- maybe two. Right. I've heard it say, Lee, that um, addicts can be predisposed to addiction because they have less dopamine receptors than other people. If that's true, how can we compensate for that? Uh, the answer is... The, the question is, how do we compensate for a dopamine deficiency and uh, that addicts frequently have? And the answer is, we don't really know all of those answers. The, the allergy of the body that Silkworth talked about is probably genetically mediated. There are, in 2015, there were 90 different genes associated with addiction. And so... They are related to dopamine receptors, but we don't really know how they all work. So generating a specific uh, genetic therapy is, we're long ways from that. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I can. I will finish this question, uh, is that medication sometimes helps that. Uh, There are a lot of different ways to uh, pursue that. Uh, I thought you were telling me I had to leave the room, but uh, I will. (laughs) Uh, Seasonal affective disorder is uh, a different issue. It's a depressive issue. And the same thing happens with that. And there are lots of different treatments. And if you want to talk afterwards, I certainly can because I have it. I've been a sex addict for 50 years. Now I'm in recovery. I like having loving sex with my wife. I'm concerned that doing that might be enhancing my addictive pathways in my brain. So is there some... Well, healthy sexuality is a very uh, good question, and I think that in my experience over 34 or 5 years, it's been individual. And uh, my, uh, there is a big difference between passion, which is an expression of closeness, than lust, which is isolating. And I think that trying to address the closeness versus isolation approach to it is a general way. Now, I think we have another meeting, and I've got to be on a panel in about five minutes. Uh, uh, if you, we, we need to uh, cut this off. And I'll be glad to talk after the next panel if y'all, anybody wants to ask questions. that wants to, we're going to close uh, with the serenity prayer. Okay, gang, are we all linked up? One thing I will just announce is I think we must have run out of handouts. I hope people have cell phones that they can record what they need to record uh, from somebody else's. All right. Uh, 
prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. I'm back. It works if you work it. There's still some handouts if people are Hey, I'm gonna take this board. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.